Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, adapters. You are in for a special treat. This week, my guest is Dr. Catherine Hayhoe of Texas Tech University. Yes, that Catherine Hayhoe who was on stage with President Obama and Leonardo DiCaprio last year talking climate change. And yes, we'll get into that event. Dr. Hayhoe and I dig into such issues as the U.S.'s recent pullout of the Paris Agreement. Surprisingly, she actually sees a major silver lining in that decision. We also discuss communicating climate change and we dig deep into the world of evangelical Christianity and why climate change has been so controversial in that community. It is a rich, fascinating, and sometimes funny conversation. Okay, before we get started, next week I'm heading to the Community-Based Adaptation Conference in Kambala, Uganda. I'll be posting on my Facebook community group page for those interested. I'm really looking forward to that and talking to a lot of people in the international community focusing on adaptation. All right, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. There's links in the show notes. And if you're new to this podcast, welcome. I am so happy that you're here. There is a backlog of great content for you to dig into. I've had some amazing guests on the podcast, and I'm expecting many more. Famous climate change reporter Andy Revkin, Dr. Michael Mann, Bill McGibbon has been on, but most of my guests are adaptation experts from around the country and even around the world. So take a look, go back and see some of the previous episodes, and I would love to hear from you if you have any comments on, on what you've heard. Okay, I will do most of the housekeeping at the end. All right, so let's get to Catherine Hayhope. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back, adapters. On today's episode, I have a truly amazing guest, and I'm talking about Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, professor in the Department of Political Science and director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it really is a thrill. You you are a climate celebrity, and I mean, I'm sure you appreciate that by now, but uh, I'm just thrilled to have you on the podcast. And I think I owe your presence on this podcast to a common friend, Sasha Peterson. That's right. He's a fellow Texan, right? He is. He lives in the Austin area. Sadly, I don't. Um, but we both do a lot of work across Texas, and it's actually both surprising and encouraging, I think, to learn about all the different activity that is happening in Texas when it comes to both climate resilience and adaptation, as well as clean energy. Well, he was a previous guest, and so we've become friends in other areas. And so he he made these introductions. And so, Sasha, if you're out there listening to this, and I'm sure you are, thank you, Sasha. Okay, Catherine, you're probably thinking I'm going to talk about climate change, and we will eventually. But first off, I just discovered that you studied quasars in a sort of a previous life. Now, that's awesome. Do you keep up yes. with that field at all? I keep up with it for entertainment, and I'm super excited because in just 10 days, I'm going to be going to Norway to participate in a big science and music festival put on by Stephen Hawking. Yes, that's Stephen Hawking and Brian Cox, who's kind of like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of the UK, where all of the speakers are astrophysicists or astronauts. And then they have one or two others, and I get to be one of the others. So I am really looking forward to catching up on what's the latest in cosmology, um, galactic astronomy, and all of that awesome, cool stuff. Well, how do you pivot from that kind of work to what you're doing now? And I'm glad you're doing what you're doing now, but that is such a radical departure. It sounds like it is, but it actually isn't. How it happened was I was almost finished my undergrad degree. I had already done a lot of research. I'd even published a couple of papers on variable stars and galaxy clustering around quasars. And I had to take an extra course just to finish out my degree. So, you know, I'd already taken a minor in Spanish. I'd already taken children's literature and the Gothic cathedral. <laughs> so I looked around and I found this interesting course over in geography on climate science. 
So I thought, oh, well, that'll be fun. You know, you learn about climate change in high school in Canada. So everybody knows it's real. But I thought I'll just learn more about it because that would be interesting to know. And so I went over and took this course and I was completely blown away by two things. The first was how big and how urgent this issue is. I mean, I had always mentally lumped climate change with other environmental issues. So air quality, water quality, deforestation, biodiversity loss, important issues, uh, but issues that we kind of tend to push to the, you know, to the sidelines in terms of our priorities often. And I didn't realize until I took that class that climate change is this overwhelming, overarching issue that means that we can't fix any of those other environmental issues. But even worse, we can't fix many of our humanitarian issues like poverty and hunger and disease and water scarcity, we won't be able to fix these problems either if we leave climate change out of the picture. It's like a hole in the bottom of the bucket and we're pouring all of our money and effort into this bucket to try to eradicate malaria or to try to um, lift people out of poverty. But this hole at the bottom of the bucket is getting bigger and bigger. It's because that's climate change and climate change exacerbates the risks we already face today. So that was the first shocker. But then the second shocker is the answer to your question, and that is the fact that I learned that climate modeling is pretty much all physics. Hmm. Nowadays, it's got more chemistry and biology in it, but back in those days, it was all physics, and some of it was the very same physics that I had learned in my astrophysics classes. And so here I was serendipitously with the exact skill set that you need to do climate modeling, because Climatology is a field that comes out of geography where you study, like, observed trends, you study natural weather patterns, you study, um, you know, the influences of humans, too. But climate modeling often comes out of physics because you have to understand the fundamental nonlinear fluid dynamics and radiative transfer of the climate system. And that is pure physics. So I had the exact skill set that you needed to do climate modeling. And I faced a really tough choice at that point because I said, well, I love what I'm doing in astrophysics. I mean, who wouldn't? The idea that on this little tiny planet, we can just use our brains and the few observational tools we have to figure out what's happening on the other side of the universe. I mean, that's just amazing. But at the same time, we have this global issue that is threatening civilization as we know it. I mean, our civilization is predicated on the unspoken assumption of a stable climate. And the faster climate changes, the more it will destabilize our civilization economically and politically. So at that point, I thought to myself, well, I'll go ahead and study climate change um, until we fix it, because it's so urgent. Surely we'll fix it soon. And then right, I can right. go back to astrophysics. I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was. Right. I think it's just kind of funny and ironic that had you stuck to studying quasars, and I'm sure you would have had a successful career, but you probably would not have been invited to Norway to hang out with Stephen Hawking and to talk about these things. But if you, you, you're now doing it because you're studying, I mean, you're doing climate change. Well, um, one of my friends from undergrad actually is also speaking there, and she oh, is an okay. astronomer. All right. All right. So you never know, but you're right. I mean, I I, I totally agree that the opportunities that have come my way, um, you know, such as speaking at the South by South Lawn Festival at the White House with President Obama and Leonardo DiCaprio or, know. you know, being featured on Fortune magazine's World's Greatest Leaders, which seems kind of crazy when, you know, you're just a professor at a little university in Texas. These types of opportunities have come along because of the field that I'm in and because of the global importance of it. And so in that way, I feel like when I receive these amazing recognitions, which always surprise me every single time. I feel like I'm receiving them almost as a symbol of the body of all of us climate scientists and people who do climate resilience and climate adaptation work and clean energy planning. I'm receiving it almost as a symbol of, of our community because of the importance of what we do. 
I'm going to ask you a, a follow-up question on your event with President Obama. But first, I think I saw this is something you you wrote somewhere. It might have been on LinkedIn or something. But you just recently got your tenure, right? No, I got tenure a couple of years ago, but I just oh, got promoted okay. to full. And so, you know, in academia, you have an assistant professor, then right. you have an associate professor, and then you have full. And so I am full now. That is awesome. Well, no, congratulations. And so the reason I bring it up is when I read that, I, I was sort of laughing. I'm just like, I can't even imagine being on that sort of tenure committee and saying, all right, we're going to reject tenure for Catherine Hayhoe. And I just... Oh, there, right, right. There, 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 were one, there were one or two people who did want to reject it. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And even for trouble. Mode, even at my own university, there's people who don't think climate change is real and who resent the fact that there's a climate scientist on the faculty. Well, I just thought that was funny. Like, there was any issue that you weren't going to get it. I'm like, oh, brother, that's a, you're at, asking for trouble. Um, I know. Well, well, honestly, though, in academia, I mean, you know academics. They're very, you know, you have to do your research. You can do some of your teaching. But the service is really kind of fluffy. And so when I decided to be doing a lot of outreach like I do, I had to make sure that my academic resume in terms of my publications, my grant record, I had to make sure that my academic resume was not just on par with average, but was above average. Because unfortunately, the old school attitude, which is changing, it really is changing. But the old school attitude is, is that if you're doing anything that is not research or maybe teaching, it is a frivolous waste of time. And I feel exactly the opposite. I feel like we, especially as climate scientists, we're like the physicians of the planet. And I mean, imagine if a physician knew what was wrong with you, or even worse, knew what was wrong with your child, but didn't bother to tell you because, oh, well, that's not doing the research. You know, that would be frivolous outreach to tell you what you're actually, you know, suffering from. As you can tell, I feel very strongly about the the moral responsibility of communicating information that we have if it is helpful to people. Well, now you got that tenure and you're going to be that ambis- ambassador to share that message. I appreciate that because I've, I've hung around academics and you're absolutely right. PhD students, they look so miserable all the time and it's just that the intense need to publish. And yeah, it's, it's a tricky field to be in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. My podcast, I don't know how much you know about it. And so it's a climate change podcast, but a lot of the guests that I have on talk about how are we going to adapt to climate change. And so I wanted you to share is that your work is obviously very relevant to adaptation practitioners or researchers out there, but I was just wondering if you could give a bit more information about the research that you're doing, why it's relevant to them. Sure. I study what climate change means to us at the local to regional scale where we live. And so half of what I do is more of the atmospheric science aspect of it, because that's what I am as an atmospheric scientist. I look at global climate models. I evaluate them to see if they produce the weather patterns that we are concerned about for a certain region. You know, for example, we're looking at ice storms in the Northeast right now, or we're looking at drought patterns in the South Central region also right now. And then I also study and test and develop new ways to what we call downscale global climate model to the local scale. Downscaling is a way to take kind of relatively coarse information coming out of the GCM You know, the grid cells in a global climate model, a GCM might be, you know, 100 kilometers, 300 kilometers wide, which is pretty big. And we might be concerned about what's happening in the city where we live in Boston or Tallahassee or Denver. 
So I look at ways to combine long-term observations, especially those taken at weather stations, as well as, you know, gridded observations we have covering the whole country. I look at ways to combine observations with global climate model outputs to create information that's relevant at the local scale that people can actually take and put right into the decision-making frameworks that they already use to look at everything from water to public health, even tourism. We've looked at, you know, the skiing industry and festival attendance during hot summer days. We've looked at all kinds of issues that are relevant to people in cities, in states, and in regions. And so just to give you some examples, we've looked at uh, whether, oh, the, the increase in heavy rainfall events in Chicago and what's the risk of combined sewer overflows or people's basements flooding. And so what should and could Chicago do in advance to mitigate that risk? We've looked at whether temperatures will get hot enough so that the asphalt on runways at certain airports actually starts to melt or not. And if so, when that would happen. We look at how, when we'll get to the point where we have so many days over a certain high temperature that the rail lines on a rapid transit line would start melting and warping and they'd have to shut down the rail lines and bus people, which would be very expensive. And so they want to know when that's going to happen so they can proactively replace the rail lines ahead of time. Or we're also working, for example, with people who do water modeling and providing inputs at the specific gauges that they use to determine how much stream flow is going to be coming through those gauges and then where how much water they're going to have in the future. So they can start to plan proactively to build more storage, to uh, increase the efficiency of use. We're trying to give people the information they need to look down the road to see the big curve that we are rapidly approaching. In fact, we're really already almost on that curve in terms of how fast climate is changing to see that curve and to prepare for that curve so that we can successfully negotiate it together. So th this is just all that practical information that planners need. And I'm just, I worked at the National Park Service and I've been involved with scenario planning. And, and I just wonder your experience, because people have trouble getting their head around, okay, this is a future model or a future scenario. And how are we going to make a decision today based on what this model might say. And I mean, it it sounds science if it's what you do, but how do you walk people through that on based on, it's, it's, it's almost like science fiction. The first thing I do is I start with historic trends. I mean, we have to build up uh, trust in what we see already happening. And so I look at historical data and I look at historical trends and I talk through them together with people because especially with professionals like water managers or city planners or people who are in touch with information, if we walk through the information that they already use and we show, hey, things are changing, that sets up the, the confidence and the trust to say, okay, well, now let's look forward into the future. And when we look forward into the future, it's very important to accurately and honestly characterize the uncertainty in the future. But the uncertainty isn't like kind of vague and hand wavy, like, oh, we have no clue what's going to happen. No, the future is uncertain because of very specific reasons. It's uncertain because of natural variability, and we're all familiar with that. But natural variability operates over shorter timescales of years up to, you know, a decade or two. Over longer timescales and the further out in the future we go, the greater sources of uncertainty are scientific and human. What choices are humans going to make and how is that going to affect the changes we see at the local to regional scale? So when I'm working with people, you know, whether it's engineers or planners or um, land managers, talking about historical trends, talking about future projections, and talking very honestly 
and openly about here are the sources of uncertainty and here are the ranges that gives us around these future projections is typically a very positive way to move forward because we're all used to coping with uncertainty. We do it all the time. We do it in our personal lives. We do it in our professional lives. And so as long as we have a handle on this is the range and this is where this uncertainty is coming from, we can then move forward with proactive decisions. Well, that was great. I've heard, you know, sort of explanations like that before, but that was the, I learned. I'm like, okay, wow, that makes a lot more sense to me. And I've been exposed to this for a long time. Great. So, <laughs> I'm, uh, just show my listeners how dumb I am. Okay. So people are thinking, Doug, what are you waiting for? And so it's been a few days since the big Paris decision. And so I just want to know what went through your head the moment you heard he made his decision. Uh, I deliberately did not listen to it. I figured, you know, he's going to say what he's going to say. I'm just going to put myself in a good place. So I think I was out paddle boarding or something. (laughs) (laughs) My happy place is on the water because it's so hard these days. And I'm sure we all struggle with this. It's so hard to remain positive when all we hear is negativity coming from Washington, D.C. This person saying, oh, we don't know what to do about it. And this other person saying, oh, well, we can't fix it. It's too expensive. And somebody else saying, oh, well, it's not even real. So why should we worry about it? And then somebody else saying, oh, if it gets bad, just pray about it and God will fix it. It's like, oh, well, let me just smoke for 50 years. And then when I get lung cancer, let me just pray about it and God will fix my poor decisions. God is like, no, I sent you doctors to tell you to stop smoking. Right, right, right. (laughs) So it's hard to stay positive. And how do I stay positive? I stay positive by looking for the positives. In this day and age, we have to look for the positives. And there are a lot of positives out there once we start looking. Because our mental attitude, our mental state, depends on the input we receive. And if we're always looking for or consuming negative input, we're going to be depressed and anxious and frustrated and sad and angry. And believe me, I, I experience that full range. Absolutely. Right, right. But, but I look for the positives. And when I look to the positives, I see a number of positives. I don't see a lot of positives for this administration or for the U.S. economy, especially the energy and the tech sectors under the decision to pull out from the Paris Agreement. And so when, when I was asked to comment on that, my number one comment is, yes, it is officially a climate agreement. But what it really is, is a massive trade agreement to spur innovation Mm -hmm. in the clean energy economy where China and India are already beating the pants off the U.S. I mean, you know, like we said, there's there's two times more jobs in the renewable energy market now than there is in the fossil fuel based electricity market. So we're, we're taking a step backwards and that is bad news for the economy. What? What types of silver linings might we see today? Well, we see the silver lining of states and cities and organizations that represent 30% of the U.S. emissions have already announced that they are going to meet the Paris Agreement targets. We also see that the world is free to move ahead now without having the potentially delaying influence of the United States in their negotiations. Mm -hmm. I mean, why did Exxon want a seat at the table so that they could continue to influence the discussion? They don't have a seat at the table anymore. The U.S. can't actually legally pull out until 2020 and another president could rejoin, at which time the, the agreement would probably be stronger than it would be if the U.S. stayed in over the next four years. Um, will a certain amount of carbon be produced by the U.S. that wouldn't have been produced otherwise? Possibly, but possibly not. Even if Clinton had been elected and stayed in the Paris Agreement, she would have had a Republican Congress right. and 
possibly Republican Senate, too. And the clean power plan was insufficient to meet the Paris Agreement targets. We need much more. We need a, a market-wide um, approach, such as, for example, a price on carbon or, you know, any approach that works. Honestly, I'm kind of agnostic as to approaches. Just get something that works. So when we look for these these bright linings of the dark cloud, they are there. And by focusing on them, that is what gives us the hope we need to keep going. Because fascinatingly and interestingly enough, when the opposition arises so strongly, that is when people get concerned. What I saw happening after January was that up until January, people were mostly complacent. The real issue isn't people who don't think climate change is real. The real issue is that we don't think it matters to us. And so up until January, you know, people were like, oh, sure, but, you know, the government will fix it. Well, guess what? All of a sudden, everybody collectively woke up and realized the government is not going to fix it. So NGOs, uh, organizations that study climate change, climate resilience, climate lobbying, environmental groups, faith-based groups that talk about stewardship, all of a sudden, all these people started flooding in their doors. People are concerned. People are actually awake. People are, what's the opposite of complacent? Um, proactive. Proactive, yeah. Okay. <laughs> people are proactive now. And you know what? I think that's actually a good thing. Well, so. well you pivoted right to my next question. I was going to ask, okay, let's not dwell on the negative. Let's look at the positives, especially in those days after. And like you said, I was so impressed with some of the states and uh, groups that just stepped up. And like you just said, this notion, like with President Obama, obviously he was doing some good things on climate change, but it's just, it's kind of a low simmering threat. And now it's like the guns pointed at you. How do you react? Things are real right now. And so I'm actually encouraged that we might take some really concrete steps on climate change because it's such an urgent situation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that the chances of actually acting now are higher than they would have been before. I mean, you know, the proof is in the pudding. We'll see what happens, you know, in four years. But again, just the fact that 30% of the U.S. is going to meet the agreement, that is possibly, possibly more than even would have happened if the election had gone a different way. That's, so. that's just insane. But yeah, we got to look for those silver linings. Yep. Catherine, I want to pivot a little bit. And I mean, it's all related, but you are a master communicator and you get talk, you talk a lot about, you get invited to everything. You get invited on podcasts, TV shows. And so you, you get it. And so I want to talk a, a, a bit about your skill set because I think there are a lot of people, uh, in the science realm who want to learn from that. And so first off, I mean, what are you kind of working on on your own? I know you get invited to do all sorts of things, but are there things on your own that you're doing focusing on climate communication? Yes, there definitely are. So I am fascinated by the social science of communication and of understanding our perspectives and attitudes. So personally, I mean, if there's a new paper out by the people at Yale who do the public opinion work, Tony Lazarowitz, or the people at George Mason University, Ed Maybach's group, or by Dan Cahan, who looks at attitudes and perspectives and, yeah. you know, how it affects where we are. I love that stuff. I just eat it up and I try it out. So every single time I give a presentation, I ask myself, what could I have done better last time? What could I try out this time to see if I could be more effective? I kind of see myself almost like as a as a living experiment yeah, of trying to yeah. implement implement these ideas and these understandings. And I'm really excited because we've started to conduct a series of studies now where I literally am the guinea pig. So <laughs> the yes, yes. So the first study is is due to be published in August. It's not out yet, but it has passed review. And that study looked at a talk I gave at a conservative Christian college. Hmm. It surveyed the students beforehand 
using some of the six Americas of global warming questions, because you always want to, you know, use questions that people have public opinion on already. So using some of the six Americas of global warming questions, we they, they surveyed the students before and then they surveyed the students afterwards to see if there was a difference in their opinions after listening to me talk. And um, I, w- I was nervous because if there wasn't a difference, I'd be like, well, you know, why am I even doing this? You know, but there was there was a difference. And so we're repeating this experiment at a couple of very different Christian colleges around North America to see what differences the different demographics make. And we're also looking at the influence of, you know, what if you include um, a Christian framing versus not? What if you talk about myths that people believe and then debunk them versus just giving them the straight up science? We're really trying to hone the messaging that I do. I'm also working very hard to try to connect the dots on this issue. As I say in an essay I just wrote that is actually the cover article of Foreign Policy magazine in June. So if you if you have a chance to lay your hands on foreign policy, you can get it in most um, you know, bookstores or magazine racks. The cover is um, a polar bear and people together on a melting iceberg. And the essay I wrote is all about how I really do believe that almost all of us have all the values and all the priorities even that we need to care about a changing climate. We just have to connect the dots because we often think of climate change as a separate issue that, you know, might be number eight, might be number 25, might be number 52 on our priority lists. Mm. But if we realize that we care about a changing climate because it affects my health, it affects the economy, it affects the security of the community I live in, it affects the effectiveness of the long range planning that I do as part of my job then all of a sudden climate change is right there in our top five issues without even making a change in our priorities. Well, it's funny you mentioned that foreign policy. I got contacted by the communications director over there, and they're like, oh, we have this new climate change issue, and if you are interested in having any of the authors on your podcast, let me know. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I've got Catherine Hayhoe coming on it. Yeah, you got me right there, yeah. (laughs) So thanks anyway. No, it it looked like a fantastic – I'm going to include that in my show notes. It's just I'm glad that they're kind of doing that sort of thematic approaching to the issue. And so I looked at your your, your website, and the the sort of things that you talk to – the groups and the shows and i guess in the climate universe there's a lot of preaching to the choir and i mean the, the outreach that you just described with these christian colleges i think that is something different but i mean does it concern you it's just it's i i'm part of that i'm i know probably with this podcast but i mean do, do you actively try to fight that Yes. I mean, I get a ton of invitations. I get way more invitations that one human can possibly fulfill, especially a human with a full-time job elsewhere. So I deliberately filter my my invitations by, if I said no, would they invite somebody else? Would they invite another climate scientist? And if the answer to that is no, then that's usually the ones I go to. Um, I also tend to go to ones, too, where we're talking to people about how do we talk about this, because the most effective thing to do is to have lots of us out there talking about this, not just one person. So it isn't just Christian colleges, though. In fact, the majority of the groups I talk to that are not really on board with, even if they're on board with the idea climate is changing, which most people actually are today, they're not really on board with the idea that this is something they have to worry about. A lot of those groups are planners, water planners, city planners, land managers. A lot of the groups I speak to aren't necessarily faith-based groups, but they're very conservative groups, especially in you know Texas, Oklahoma, um, you know the whole southern U.S. They're conservative groups um, that don't really like to do something differently, especially if that different thing is associated politically with the left-hand side of the spectrum. I do do a lot of talking about, you know, how do we talk about this issue? And one of the biggest things I've learned is that 
just telling people the facts and expecting they're going to change their mind just because I have presented them with facts. That's one of the worst things we can do. In fact, Dan Cahan's research, I think it was, was what showed that if we, if we present facts to someone who disagrees with those facts and, you know, people do disagree with facts, although whether you disagree with gravity or not, if you step off the cliff, you're going down, whether you disagree, climate is changing. It still is, but there's lots of people who disagree with it. And by just arguing facts, we actually deepen the divide between us. And so I have um, I have this short PBS digital series that's on YouTube called Global Weirding. All the videos are about five minutes long. And one of the videos is called If I Just Tell Them the Facts, They'll Change Their Mind, Right? Mm. And the answer to that is, of course, wrong. So that's a fun little video to watch. And then I also have a much longer full-length lecture I gave at the University of Minnesota last year where I talk about can we change people's minds on climate? And if so, how do we talk about climate change in a way that actually does change people's minds? And the answer is not arguing facts. It's talking about solutions that are compatible with the priorities and the values and even the ideologies that people already have. Okay, I hope you are enjoying the episode. There is more great content from Catherine to come. Don't forget, America Adapts is now a charitable organization, and we are looking for your support. There are links to donate to America Adapts in the show notes. It's very simple, it's easy, and most importantly, it's incredibly appreciated. The goal of America Adapts Media is to get out in the field more and to do podcasts. Now, I've gone out and I've done a podcast at Harvard University. I'm heading off to Uganda This is the next phase of America Adapts, and we're looking for support to do these things. So I hope you see this as an opportunity to get the word out on adaptation. So thank you. Okay, now back to Dr. Hayhoe. So that's the kind of the last part of this discussion, and I want it to be a meaty part, but you talk a lot about your faith and reaching out to Christians. And so I want to talk about evangelical Christians in particular. And just so you know, I want to give you a little bit of background so it's helpful to you because I, I, I really feel it's important to kind of drill down into this. My wife's an evangelical Christian. She tried to drag me along for that ride. I just, it didn't take, but I have very close family that's very conservative evangelical. My wife's not conservative, but it, it's, it's a different kind of Christianity. And I think what the media has done when they want to talk about Christianity and climate change, they lump everyone together and that's problematic. Yes. And like, the, and I'm sure you know this, you're, you were at an evangelical church when they talk about the Pope talking about climate change. I am thrilled to death, but evangelical Christians, that doesn't resonate with them. You know, there's a tension between the evangelicals and the Catholic church. And when you lump mm-hmm. them together, that, that creates trouble. Mm-hmm. Yes. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that it is important to point out, first of all, that Christianity is not monolithic. If you look at which type of people in the United States are most concerned about a changing climate, and there was American Association of Religion study in 2014 that actually did this, it turns out the most concerned people group in the entire United States about a changing climate are Hispanic Catholics. Mm. And the second most concerned group are black Protestants, And then after that, you have the unaffiliated and the non-Christian religions. And then you have the white um, mainline Protestants, the white evangelicals and the white Catholics. And so that gives us the first clue that it isn't where you go to church on a Sunday or a Saturday that actually influences your opinion, because white Catholics and Hispanic Catholics have the same pope. Mm -hmm. Right. And yet they are at the exact opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their levels of concern about a changing climate. So when you look at evangelicals, even evangelicals are not monolithic. And in the United States, 
after, you know, many years of careful observation, my husband's an evangelical pastor. I go to a great church called Church Without Religion. Um, that's all about how, you know, Christianity isn't about these bunch of rules that we have to keep. It's about a relationship. And so I go to I go to church. I talk to people at church. I'm I'm embedded in this community. And I've come to recognize that in the United States, there are two types of evangelicals. And these evangelicals, we might go to the same church. We read the same books. You know, we might follow the same thought leaders. But one type of evangelical is what the National Association of Evangelicals defines as an evangelical, which is someone who takes the Bible seriously. Someone whose primary source of moral authority is the Bible first and other things second. But in the United States today, we also have political evangelicals. Political evangelicals are people who, if you say, are you evangelical, they would say yes. And then you would say, well, what do you think about issue X? And their response is not based on the Bible. Their response is based primarily on their political ideology. And if their political ideology disagrees with the Bible, they will go with their political ideology. And in fact, studies have showed that many evangelicals who voted for Trump don't even go to church. So we have this kind of we have this idea that evangelicals are, you know, X. But actually, within the evangelical community, there are people who are extremely sincere and thoughtful and take the stewardship of the planet seriously and the care for the poor seriously. I mean, the National Association of Evangelicals has even published a report predating the Pope's encyclical about how caring for the poor is caring for about climate change. But then you have what I call the CNN evangelicals, the political evangelicals, which are the ones that sadly we always hear about in the media. And it absolutely breaks my heart to hear people who say that they believe the same thing as I do, saying things that are completely contradictory to what we learn in the Bible about caring for people and caring for creation. You had mentioned that one of the things that doesn't work is you go up there and say, here are the facts. And, and I think about my experience in the church. Like, I think secular America really has no clue what's going on in those churches. And so you go into a vibrant church and they have Bible study groups and people are getting to know each other. And this idea of, you know, you're sharing your testimony with your, you know, your, your, your fellow Christians in that church. And I was just shocked at like the things that people would share and this sort of sense of community. And they, you could say almost anything and they're going to accept you because you're asking for forgiveness. And my point with all this is, and I think of a scientist, and even if it's a scientist that's going into a church, and here's my presentation on climate change, you got it's not going to resonate. And I think of those other ways, and I'm sure you have those experiences. How are you sharing your testimony? Because that is just... That's how they operate. That's how they communicate it. I mean, you can almost be talking about anything. You could be saying, you know what? I used to beat my dog, but if you go in there and you're just, you know, vulnerable and you're sharing that, you're making inroads. And I just scientists, I don't think are ever comfortable doing that, with the exception of you. Well, you you just hit the nail absolutely on the head. That is exactly how I talk about it. And as a scientist, it was uncomfortable because for us, talking about our feelings and being vulnerable is like. You know, we'd almost rather pull down our pants. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you're vulnerable to a scientific meeting, it's like blood on the water. You know, right. you're just asking to be eaten by the sharks, the sharks being your fellow academics. Uh, but growing up in the in the community, I had the advantage of being familiar with this approach. And so that is exactly what I do. I start if I'm talking to an evangelical church or if I'm talking to, you know, chapel service at a Christian college or a Bible study group, I start with my personal testimony. I start with um, a statement of faith also. This is what I believe and this is what we believe too. And I kind of go through 
what we believe together. And that is the first step that I always take whenever I'm talking to any group is going through what already bonds us, what already connects us. Now, for some groups, I end up spending 10 minutes talking about water and flood and drought and how much we care about it. But for Christian groups, I talk about what we believe and what it means to me personally and how my personal life experiences have given me this this um, passion and this I just compelled to uh, tell people about what we're doing to this planet that God created and how that's affecting poor and vulnerable people. And when I do that, when I come at it from that approach of of honesty, transparency, vulnerability, I mean, it is it is very rare to get somebody coming just hard against me as they would if I walked in with, you know, ice core data and, um, you know, temperature trend. And sure, I do show stuff later on. I usually tend to just show stuff that happened over the last 6,000 years because actually to see the influence of humans on climate, the last 6,000 years is actually much more powerful yeah, than if we true. go further back. Um, I do get to that, but I start, first of all, by giving that personal testimony because context is so important. And whoever it is we're talking to, Again, whether it's water managers, whether it's Boy Scouts, um, whether it's, you know, um, senior citizens or whether it's a church, we need to start by connecting and bonding over the shared context that is important to both of us before we can then share from the heart why we're concerned about this issue and why we're excited about the solutions that there are to this issue. I don't know if you're going to be able to sort of answer this. And as you can tell, I'm sort of sharing my Christian experiences with you. But I think of, you know, you're in a Bible study and I've been in these. You can have like a 60 year old white male businessman who might just be bawling as they're kind of sharing something and they know this is a safe place for them. And there's just this profound humility as they expose this information. But then they walk out the door and I'm finding this a lot with evangelical Christians. It's like if you start talking about the issue of climate change, they are so certain about it's not happening. And I'm like, what happened to that humility that I saw? I thought, you know, this Christians, you're taught to be humble. And then when it comes to some of these issues, and I know I think it goes back to some of these, the politics of it, but I just like, come on, you guys are taught to be humble. Like most of us are never taught. And why is it lost? I, I can tell you exactly why it's lost. Okay, good. It's because we, and when I say we, I mean evangelicals in the United States, we are deliberately told by people we trust that global warming is a false religion requiring worshiping the earth, worshiping the creation yeah. rather than the creator. And any good adherent of any faith tradition knows that if you're confronted with a false religion, you need to reject it. You need to reject the false prophet. And so interestingly, when I go into some situations where I know that the frame people have is, you know, this is a false religion and you me, are a false prophet. I actually go in and my first step is to disrupt their narrative. And so I can disrupt their narrative sometimes by just talking about what we believe, our, our mutual shared faith. But sometimes I disrupt the narrative even more deliberately by going in with a title slide that actually states, I don't believe in global warming. Hmm. Or sometimes I even survey people because I have this awesome thing called poll everywhere where people can text in and the poll shows up live on my right, slides. Right, right. So. Um, so people can do that anonymously. I ask people, do you believe in global warming? And usually, you know, depending on the group, it's might be 50, 50. And then I say, well, guess what? I don't believe in global warming. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, she doesn't believe in global warming. What do you mean? And then that gives me the opportunity to talk about what I do believe in. Faith is the evidence of what we don't see. Science is the evidence of what we do see. I know that climate is changing because there's evidence for it. And so I'm showing them how climate change is not a religion. And sometimes I even bring it out. Like I say, you know, here's some quotes from politicians who say it is a religion, but it isn't. It's just what God's creation is telling us. And so 
That's why when that businessman, you know, picks up, wipes his tears, walks out the door, that's why he is so adamant that it is not real is because the true believer is to reject the false religion. And furthermore, even more generally, we are being told that we can't be who we are and admit that climate is changing or that we need to fix it. In other words, we can't be conservative. We can't be Republican. We're even sometimes told we can't be Christian. I mean, of all the nasty hate mail and comments I get, and I get a fair amount of it. Yesterday was a particularly rough, rough day on Facebook. I think I got about 20, oh, and wow. all of them were from white, white men. Ah. Um, oh, yeah. So, unfortunately, all of them. Out, out of about 1,000, I was being a scientist, I can't. So, out of about 1,000, I got one person who was not white. One. And I got about four who were women, and all the rest were white men. <laughs> so... Um, we're told that we can't literally can't be who we are if we are going to agree that climate is changing. So we can't. Uh, I get um, a ton of stuff saying, well, you can't be a Christian. I get the odd letter or email saying, well, you can't be a real scientist if you're a Christian. But the vast majority of stuff I get is saying you can't be a real Christian if you're a scientist or if you say climate change is real. So we're being told that you can't be who we are. And so when you step outside the doors of the church, we are taking who we are out into the world. And we are told to stand firm in our identity and who we are. And sadly, the vast majority of evangelicals across the United States have a false identity. A false identity that we've been told, you know, this thing isn't real. Um, you know, we can wreck the planet. It doesn't matter. We can push the eject button when we're done. We have been fed this false theology. And so when I talk to Christian groups, I really see what I'm doing as something that it talks about in the Bible, in the book of James, where it says you're like somebody who looked in the mirror and then went away and forgot what you look like. So I see what I'm doing as holding up a mirror to my fellow Christians and saying, this is who we are. This is who we believe ourselves to be. We're people who take the Bible seriously. Let's look at the Bible. Let's see what it says. And then let's take it seriously. Well, you, you answered my question and it's, it's vexing, but your point about climate change has become this false religion because if someone asked me what percentage do I think climate change is happening, I would say 99%, but I appreciate science. I would never say 100%. Maybe there is some explanation, but you could talk to climate denialists and they are 100% sure it's not happening. And I've always just been vexed by that confidence in the opposite position, you know, and you, yeah, yeah it's, it's because to admit that it was happening would be unacceptable to their identity. They see it as a threat to their personal identity because it would imply solutions that they feel are unacceptable because we've also been told there's a lot of stuff we've been told. We've also been told that the only solutions to climate change are economic collapse, severe penalties on the United States total government control of our personal lives to further the United Nations agenda to take over the world with the Antichrist behind the curtain pulling the strings. That sounds pretty bad. I do, <laughs> I do not exaggerate. I get these comments all the time. Um, most people don't go all the way to the Antichrist, but I would say, you know, at least once a month or two, somebody does. So that's what we've been told. And who wouldn't object to that, right? I mean, if that's what we really believe is the solutions to climate change, I would stand against them too. And so that's why talking solutions is so important is because if we can present solutions that people can get on board with, that is much more effective at changing people's minds regarding the reality of the problem than arguing facts. Because 99.9% .9 of people who have a problem with climate change don't have a problem with the science and don't have a problem with the theology, even though the smoke screens they throw up 
are sciencey smoke screens like oh it's just a natural cycle or religiously smoke screens oh god's in control he wouldn't let it happen these are only smoke screens for the real reason and that is that they cannot agree with the perceived solutions and that's why talking solutions is so powerful oh i hate that one where they're like someone says oh that's what god won't let this happen it's just like when did you start speaking on behalf of god everyone makes themselves god that's just <laughs> hi yeah exactly and and again i mean it's like you know, God, it even says in the Bible, you know, you reap what you sow. God gave us free will to make decisions because God wants to treat us like adults, not babies. And the fact that we have that ability to make bad decisions means that we can make bad decisions with bad consequences. And that's what climate change is. I want to wrap this up relatively soon. This has been an amazing conversation, but just I, I was thinking you're out there and we need a dozen more of you. And I, I'm curious because it sounds like you have really put some deep thought on how you could be more effective, especially in Christian circles. But do you ever just think, like, do you have a wish list of Christian leaders out there, public Christian leaders, who are, some of them might be hostile to climate change, where you just would be, if I could be in a room with them, or if they could be, like, converted. I mean, are there some folks out there that you think could make just massive inroads to the evangelical community? The sad thing is, is that people have tried that, and it has failed for two reasons. They put, you know, pastors and ministers on boats and took them to Alaska to show them, you know, the evidence of climate change with their own eyes. They've taken Christians from Malawi and from poor countries in Africa that are already suffering devastating impacts from climate change and taken them around to U.S. churches to actually provide a personal witness and testimony that this is real. And all of these efforts are good efforts and they're certainly useful efforts, but ultimately they have failed for two reasons. One is in the evangelical world, Leadership is fairly transitory, transitory, Tempo temporal, temporal yeah. it, it passes. Yes, it passes quickly. You know, the flavor of the year in terms of popular authors or pastors or, you know, um, podcasts or radio shows or television shows, the flavor tends to change relatively quickly. I mean, each person has their devoted audience who's always with them. But, you know, the hot person who everybody's listening to or watching or using in their Bible study group, it changes so quickly. And coupled with that is the fact that many leaders who were taken on these trips or who were exposed to this information have decided it's not the hill I want to die on. It would be such an unpopular thing for me to say that I would lose so many of my followers or supporters or financial supporters or even fans in the case of the musicians who went to Paris. I would lose so many people. It's just not worth it to me. I feel like I can do more good if I don't really speak out on this issue. And then the third Point is that when you actually look at this issue, where do where do pastors of individual churches get their information? The evangelical world is so fragmented. There's no pope. You know, there's no main leader. The majority of evangelicals and evangelical pastors don't necessarily get their information from a central source, a specific organization or ministry or seminary. They often get it from conservative news mm -hmm. sources that they trust that at least at least on the surface, say that they espouse Christian values. So if I could wave a magic wand and change one thing, I would change Fox News. That is the one thing I would change. Then what would my dad watch? Okay, come on. Um, no, I'm absolutely in agreement. Yes, Fox News is like this force of just – it's profoundly influencing yeah. like people's understanding of issues. It's just terrible. Yep, it is. I mean, the Union of Concerned Scientists has done a study where they looked at the accuracy of climate information presented on the different networks, not, you know, opinions, just is it correct or not? And can you prove it's correct or not? And no surprise, the majority of the information presented on Fox News was actually false. And you could show that it was false. 
All right, we're going to see like Catherine Hayhoe saying, don't watch Fox News, but that's something you can live with. So, Catherine, I don't want to end this podcast on a negative note like Fox News. I, I sort of actually want to revisit some of the outreach that you've done. And, you know, specifically, and I think people are very curious, you had that amazing event, and I watched it live with President Obama and Leonardo DiCaprio. And I'm, I'm just curious, what, just not so much about what you talked about, but just being there on stage. What was, What were you thinking? I mean, that must have been an amazing moment for you. It was. And I just love the fact that it illustrated how so many people in this country do take climate change seriously. I mean, it was a day long event with presentations and discussions and panels and talks on all kinds of important topics that are very current and very pressing. And yet they chose the the keynote event to be about climate change. And then they showed Leonardo DiCaprio's movie Before the Flood, which is an excellent movie that is about climate change. So going into it, I was obviously a little nervous. I mean, here you are sitting up there with the president right, of the United right. States and, um, in front of this huge crowd as well as a huge virtual crowd as well, because it was live broadcast and people can still watch it online if they're interested. And I think to myself, oh, my goodness, well, you know, let's just not trip over my shoes. Let's make it to the chair without falling on my face. And then the funniest thing happened. We had these prearranged questions that the president and I had both had a chance to look at and comment ahead of time, although Leonardo had written them himself. And so Leonardo asks the president the first question and the president answers eight questions. Wow. I mean, that man, I just was blown away by the profound amount of information that he keeps in his head. I could not have answered those questions better myself. And this is my field. So then I looked over at Leonardo and he's like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do now? And he's like shuffling the questions. <laughs> completely nervous, like, now what am I going to do? He just, you know, he just messed up. And so then I was like, OK, I can totally relax. This is not my problem. <laughs> and then about, about halfway through, I was in the middle. I, I sort of looked over my shoulder towards the sound booth. And this guy in the sound booth is like making these like cut, cut, cut. Um, gestures because apparently we had already reached the end of our time, and I was like, I'm not going to tell the president to right, shut up. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so we kept on going for another half hour. So I had a huge amount of fun, and it was really awesome. Well, I'm sure it was a surreal moment. If you had to kind of time to think about it, you're like, all right, there's a the president on one side of me, and Leonardo DiCaprio on the other, and so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was tremendously honored. And like I said, I really feel fortunate in that I'm able to serve as a representative for our community. And that is what I feel like I'm doing whenever I have some amazing opportunity like this is I'm trying to represent our community to the best of my ability because this is what we do. And there are so many of us who do this. And the fact that we as a as a body are being recognized uh, by you know, everybody from the president of the United States to, you know, organizations that do um, economic planning or, um, you know, international development or national security. I just think that the momentum is moving in the right direction. There are some barriers. There are some walls. There are some obstacles to overcome right now. But the momentum is there. This giant boulder that we've been pushing uphill for so long, it is rolling downhill now. And yes, it's hitting those bumps. It's hitting, you know, people are trying to put the brakes on it. But um, the future is on our side. Well, that's an awesome kind of final message. And I have one last quick question for you. What I ask all my guests is that, and if you can also help make introductions, that's helpful too, is that if I had uh, to invite someone on the podcast, who would you recommend? And if it just happened to rhyme with Lobama or Dio, um, <laughs> I wouldn't be averse to that either. But seriously, like, um, who would be a great guest? I mean, of course, President Obama would be a great guest. But uh, yeah, who would yeah. you recommend? 
Oh, well, I would say, honestly, one of my favorite people is actually Don Cheadle. We were in the years of living dangerously together, and he is so knowledgeable about climate change. He is a UN ambassador for the environment. And after our interactions, he actually joined Citizens Climate Lobby as one of their advisors, too. I just love what he does, and he would be a fantastic person to talk to if you can. But aside from that, there are just so many people who are quietly doing the work that they do in the places where they live. And hearing about some of these stories, like have the mayor of Georgetown, Texas on. Georgetown is going 100% renewable to save money. Have him on and have him share how they're doing this in the heart of conservative America, because Georgetown is not Austin. They are not this, you know, greeny liberal community. How are people doing like this? Have those unusual stories on. Have have the, the solar panel manufacturers from San Antonio who took in the out-of-work oil patch workers who lost their job when oil prices um, fell. Have them in and talk about how they're expanding across Texas. Um, I would love to hear more about all of the innovations and in technology that everybody from Elon Musk and Tesla are doing down to what's happening locally next door. Have those good news stories on. Tell us something that we haven't heard that makes us feel hopeful and encouraged at the end. I think there's just a ton of like activity happening. So a lot of guests I could have on. So great recommendations. OK, so on that note, um, any final thoughts, um, Catherine? Again, thank you so much for what you do. It just was an honor to have you on. You know, any final thoughts? Thank you. I think the final thought I would want to leave all of us with is the one I remind myself of daily, and that is that we care about a changing climate because it affects everything that is already at the top of our priority lists. And by carrying that with us in our conversations with people, that is how we can move past this he said, she said, I'm this, you're that debate and argument that we so often tend to fall into, and which is why most of us avoid talking about climate change in uh, in our lives. So if you could do one thing this week, Try to have a conversation about climate change with somebody who you don't normally have, but don't come at it with all of these facts and arguments and data. Come at it by saying, hey, I read about this awesome thing that's happening. Like China just built a floating solar panel farm over a flooded, toxic coal mine, and the water is too toxic to use for anything else, but they're using it as cool, cooling for the solar farm. And you could talk about that with somebody and somebody be like, oh, really? I thought China was building a coal fired power plant today. And you'd be like, no, they're actually shutting down coal fired power plants now. And you can have this amazing conversation without any argument. And so often with stunning agreement with somebody who might not be on the same page or somebody who who much more frequently just really isn't interested or doesn't care. Well, that's an awesome final thought. And I just want to throw out that you have an open invitation. You are not at a loss of places that you can talk, but you always have an open invitation. If there's a paper you're releasing or something you're doing, um, I would love to have you back on again. But thank you so much. And for all you listeners out there, this is America Adapts. Thank you. Great chatting. All right, that's a wrap, Adapters. That was an amazing conversation with Dr. Hayhoe. It was truly a treat for me. I, I got, I felt like I got to know her. As you can tell, she's just a very personable person. I invited her back on, and even after what you heard, she had suggested that there's a report she's involved in. She thought she could come back on for that. So I will extend that invitation again. She is out there talking to a lot of groups, doing some amazing things, and I was really fortunate to get her on the podcast, and I thought it was just a fascinating conversation, and I learned a ton, and I hope you did too. Okay, some housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The advantage of subscribing is that it shows up in your whatever app you're using on your smartphone. It shows up every week, and this is generally a weekly podcast, and so subscribe. And please, if you're thinking of ways to supporting the podcast, one of the simplest ways that you can do is write a review. And if you click on that iTunes link, you can go in there 
And Apple has made this somewhat difficult, but you write a review, you can give it how many stars you want, hopefully five stars, but also write something if you you feel so inclined on why you like the podcast or even recommendations on future guests and such. So that would be greatly appreciated. I've mentioned this before. I want to highlight a partnership that we have with the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. Beth Gibbons is the managing director over there. They are a relatively new professional society bringing together the best and brightest minds in adaptation. I obviously support that. So you can be part of this network. So consider joining ASAP. You can find them at adaptationprofessionals.org. That again is adaptationprofessionals.org. Consider joining or just learning more about what they do. Okay, again... If you consider donating to America Adapts Media, I'd mentioned this in the previous podcast, we are now a tax-deductible charitable organization. And so your donation is tax-deductible. And I am very interested in finding the resources that we can tell the story of adaptation. And I'm I'm hoping you guys see this as an opportunity too, that we need to get the word out that adaptation is going to be this great journey that society takes over the next 100, 200 years. And I want to tell those stories, and I certainly need your support to do that. There's buttons within the show notes, and I just hope that we can keep doing this for you and bringing these amazing stories and these amazing guests. And so, yes, um, it was a transition that we took just a few months ago where it just became a podcast, but now transition. The Social Good Fund is our fiscal sponsor, and that allows us to be a charitable organization. So it was a very exciting news for America Adapts. Okay, on that note... Next week's episode is sort of a hodgepodge. I have another episode of Australia Adapts, and I'm also bringing on in a short interview some of my youngest listeners. Two young men from Portland, Oregon are coming to the nation's capital to lobby their their congressional delegation on carbon issues. And so I'm very excited they reached out to me, and I'm going to go to the Capitol and do a micro-podcast with them. And so that should be on next week's episode, too. Looking forward to that. And finally, let's see. Well, no, that's it, I think. All right. I hope everyone has a fantastic week. Don't forget what we're doing here. We are building a community of adapters, and let's do this together. All right. Take care.